Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Touring Talk episode two with uh, Chris Panaski and Adam Hugo. All right, today we're going to be talking about camping or, you know, just places to sleep and relating that back to bike touring. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we share some good information for people out there that might be wondering and needing the, the DL on the whole camp situation when traveling. So Adam, have you ever camped? <laughs> yeah, mate. If, um, yeah. So I think on a bike tour, this one of the first things people will ask is like, where are you sleeping? And yeah. often it'll be people that just stumble across you. Or even now when I tell people about some of my tours, they're like, oh, where do you sleep? And for me, the, with the style of bike touring I have done in the past, I'm pretty much a wild camper most of the time. Yeah. I definitely have stayed in hotels and hostels, and we can go into that later. But when you tell somebody that you're going to choose to choose to sleep in the wild, <laughs> it blows so many people's minds. They just can't believe what, like, what, what are you doing? That's illegal. Mm-hmm. And I suppose there's quite a lot to get into there within just wild camping in itself, but there's so different ways. That's kind of funny because when I think back to my tours, the vast, vast, vast majority of nights, I have not camped. And it's not because I don't like camping. I mean, I freaking love camping. The reason I haven't camped is just because I was going fast and light, for instance, yeah. uh, when I did the Meihongsan loop. Even when I cycled from Osaka to Hiroshima, I was doing it in three days, so I needed accommodation for two nights. And I found a, I found a, a guest, a host for one night, and I stayed in a, um, a, not an Airbnb, but just a hostel another night. So, I mean, my experiences have been different, but by no means do I not like camping. I do love it. So. You know what that shows you with a, with a bite tour is that there's no right or wrong way. God, that I feel like I say you, that a lot, huh? Yeah, that's it. That is basically the, the rule is there's no rules. Is Yeah, if you, whatever you find works for you. And, you know, it works depending on your time, your budget. And there's so many different – and the country you're in, there's definitely countries where yeah. I wouldn't go to wild camp an awful lot. And there's others where I would almost exclusively choose to wild camp. So um, well, how do, what do you want to talk about first? Let's, I guess, set down some descriptions of what are the different types of places to sleep, right? So, I mean, of course, I just mentioned hostels. Completely acceptable, especially depending on the country you're in. What a, what a hostel is in Europe, what a hostel is in Southeast Asia and different countries, and, and the, what a hostel is in the USA 
and Canada are all very different. These, these are, yeah, they're not all the same. The hostels doesn't always mean hostel, <laughs> what I mean for hostel. Yeah, I think, um, like when you're in Southeast Asia and you go to a hostel, it is like a party place, big time. It can be. Depends where you are, but it very much can be. So you've got to be careful when you're booking. If that's what you want, great. But if you want a, a good night's rest and you're in a hostel, it can be it can be crazy and loose. And you, before you know it, you've not slept at all and you've just got drunk all night. Yeah, I think your buddy Big Simon there, he, uh, he's been posting some, <laughs> some stories of crazy nights in hostels throughout Southeast Asia. Hostels in Europe are pretty, usually to a really good standard and fairly cheap. So... In my experience of hosteling around, they not, they don't really expect people on bicycles to turn up too often. Mm-hmm. And that's a really quite common everywhere. When you turn up on a bike to a hostel in any country, you're generally going to become a very talked about or easy to talk to person. So you've got a story generally. So if you want a, a quiet night by yourself, turning up on a bike may not be the best idea. Yeah, if absolutely. You want to say, it's great. I love it. When I've had a bit of alone time, I love being in a hostel. It's like my one of my favorite things about a bike tour. And it's one of them experiences where usually you don't meet that many locals in a hostel. You'll meet other international travelers. So you get, if you haven't been around somebody maybe that speaks English or your own language, it's a good opportunity to be around people like yeah. that. So I think that's that's a key is like you got your hostels. Hostels tend to be fun, lots of foreigners, you know, cheap possibly bed bugs and stuff kicking around to just add extra excitement. Whereas when I was in Southeast Asia traveling, I would just stay in cheap hotels because hotels were dirt cheap. You can get a great place for five to 10 bucks a night and or, yeah. or less than 10 euros a night for sure. And and that was, you know, you're, you're, you're not around other people, but you got a good bed and you got a shower and stuff. So for hotels, for countries like Southeast Asia, or um, Central South America, or even or even just generally in most of Asia, bar like Japan and Korea, uh, hostels are, uh, hotels are pretty cheap. Yeah, generally, and you can definitely find cheap, medium, and expensive. And if you're on a long, long bike tour like the one I did, um, you'll generally be looking for cheap because your budget is low. I've met guys. I've met, I met a guy in, in in the USA who was cycling down the Pacific coast. The guy was a lawyer for Google, and he was he was getting hotels minimum $150, 200 a night. Nice. I made friends with him on Instagram, and he was posting pictures of him in his hot tub, <laughs> and um, and there's me sleeping in like a park, and I'm like, God damn it, that guy's having having such an easy time. But uh, it just depends on your your budget and the, what you want, I suppose. Yeah. And and you see it too, you know, where people camping, like some people will say, you know, the view I get when I wake up in the morning camping for free is as good, if not better than what you might get at a five-star forest resort, you know, so it's, you don't have to spend so much money. There's definitely been times where, where I've decided to camp over a hotel because I know I'll, be, I'll get a better night's sleep camping. And I usually do sleep well. It's so dependent on you as a person. But for me, for hotels, some of the places where I've slept in hotels the most has been Southeast Asia, similar to you. Mm-hmm. And I feel that because they're cheap and it's, I would often not have a SIM card. So it it give me Wi-Fi, which for me, I was video editing and I was using social media. So to have Wi-Fi every other night was, was really appreciated. 
And sleeping in a tent when it's crazy hot and humid in somewhere like Malaysia is not a fun experience. Mm-hmm. It's really grim. So there I would I stayed in hotels most of the time in Malaysia. Yeah. Let's talk about I think moving forward from that slowly getting ourselves more wilderness like. Let's talk about uh, couch surfing and warm showers. I think those are two um also really good ideas as places to stay and more predominantly yeah. so just as a chance to get off the bike and maybe rest for a couple of days, but So shall we go first explain what each of them websites are? Let's do so- it. Yeah, with um, let's start with warm showers because that's the more bike specific one. That's yeah. the one that I've I've got the most experience with myself. Mm-hmm. How long really have you used, been on warm showers for? I think I've been I've actively used it for about two years. Yeah, now, I think I've been time. on longer, but actively used it for about two years. I think I've got about eleven references, but I've definitely used it. I think maybe between fifteen and twenty times. Okay. So you know, some people don't always send references. Yeah. Particularly, yeah, just some people are so busy with guests that they don't have time. That's it. But, um, yeah, so warm showers, it's definitely nothing rude. When I sometimes <laughs> explain to the people that have never heard of it, uh, that particularly, again, North Americans, they think of uh, the old golden showers, and it's absolutely nothing to do with that. Yeah, when I lived in Malaysia, in Malacca, just up the road from where I used to live, there was a, a, a condominium complex called Golden Showers Residences. Very <laughs> <laughs> so good. I had a really good time here. But yeah, Warm Showers, the premise was when it first started, as a, it was a group of people where you can create a profile and offer effectively a place for a cycle tourist to have, to a, have warm a warm shower. As a minimum, a warm shower, generally people then offer either uh, a space to pitch a tent in, the, in a yard or in a garden, or, which is generally the case that I've found, is a, a bed or at least a sofa to mm-hmm. sleep on. Yeah. Um, I think for me, of the 20 odd so times I've, I've used it, have I been in a tent once? I don't think I have. I don't think I've ever had to stay in my tent. I've always been able to go inside. I've slept on a sofa maybe once or twice and then beds the rest of the time. Yeah, so. I haven't yet used warm showers to be hosted. I've only hosted people because, um, yeah, I kind of got into it as I was leaving Malaysia. Our first guest, um, I had just got married a few months before and I told my wife about warm showers. She did not seem thrilled. And then she's like, you will literally just let strangers into the house. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll let strangers in the house. But they're cyclists because they'll have bikes. So, you know, they're not some kind of weirdos. <laughs> That's a really normal response, though. It's like, yeah. what the hell are you doing? Why are you letting a stranger into my house? And that's the gold, of, like the, almost the gold dust of this website. is it's, If you look at the map of the world on the website, you can see dots everywhere. And there's definitely countries where it's used more, like the USA, mm-hmm. North America, used a lot. And... But then in Europe, it's also pretty busy. In places like Southeast Asia, you'll find maybe one or two in each city. Yeah, and the one or two you find are, are wonderful. They're really, really outgoing. The people that, that have all different reasons to be on there. So, what was your reason to be a host on Warm Showers? Well, we're, we're going to talk about it eventually, but couch surfing. So, I did. I started couch surfing in 2007 and um, traveling, and then I hosted a bunch of people, and then I kind of got off of it. 
I wasn't as thrilled with it. I found that it was just getting used a lot as people like with the place I lived in Malaysia, which was in the Northeast. A lot of people were coming there to go to the tropical islands that are close by. And they would often catch a flight and arrive in town at around like mid afternoon when it's too late to get the boat to the island that day. So they would be like, Oh, I need a couch surfing for one night. And right. what I didn't like about it was it became this thing of I would have the exact same conversation with every single person. I would always take him to the exact same restaurant because it would be like the best restaurant in town for like authentic food. I would show them the same places. And then the next day I'd say bye. And I was like, I'm tired of it. I need a break. So at, at one point I raised it up. So I'm like, no one night stands. Like people had to stay a couple nights. And, yeah. and then I started having really good connections with people. Like some people ended up staying like a week. And and then as I got more into bike touring, I, I knew about warm showers and I thought, you know what I want to do? I want to do more for cyclists. I want it to be like very specific to what I, what I love most. And so our first hosting experience was a Spanish couple that were coming through Malaysia, through Kuala Lumpur. And by then I was living in down, like not downtown, but fairly close to town. And they ended up staying for about five, five nights or something as they were sorting out some visas getting extended visa for Thailand and just hanging out. And we got along so well. And my wife was like, wow, I can't believe how amazing the people are. And that kind of completely changed her. So good. Yeah. So then by the time you and Lucia came through uh, Cambodia a year later, no, not a year later, but six months later, she was okay with having people stay at the house, you know? Yeah, that's really nice. And I see any of these websites where somebody hosts somebody else for free. And that's effectively what couch surfing mm-hmm. and one shows are is, is somebody hosting somebody for free. It's a transaction in the sense of you're transacting your time and your energy. And some people see it in different ways, but I know when I, I feel as a cyclist, if I'm I've never hosted anybody, I'm on warm showers. If anyone is in Hull and wants to stay in, in East Yorkshire in England and they're cycling through, maybe not now with all the the stuff that's going on with the coronavirus, but in the future, when everything hopefully goes back to relative normality, yeah. and if you're ever there, I'd like to host people. But for me, I see myself when I'm going to be hosted is I need to be on form. I need to be ready to like entertain, tell stories, mm-hmm. and, and really not see it as like you described a one night stand. I don't see it as an opportunity to sleep for free. Yeah, I see it as opportunity to meet somebody, a local from that country who wants to converse with me. And for sure, there are there are exceptions. And some people that use it don't don't really want to speak to you. Yeah. And when that happens, that's fine. So I, I used it once in Canada, actually, in a, in Yukon, right up in a place called uh, Destruction Bay. Destruction Bay. It was. <laughs> it was, mate. It was right up in Destruction Bay. And the place I stayed, the guy was called Adam as well. And he was like, he lived about 20 minutes drive away from a school where he worked. And the school had a, had a as part of the job, you got, as he was a teacher, he got given a, an accommodation, a room. And he didn't need the room because he already had his own house. So mm. rather than just sit there and be empty, he put it on warm showers. The odd person doing Alaska all the way down through Canada and beyond would go through and he'd put them up. He'd see you. He'd say, there's beers in the fridge, help yourself. And that was great. It was so nice. It was also nice because it meant I got to video edit in the kind of a bit Mm -hmm. of a warm 
free place to stay. So there are exceptions where sometimes you'll stay for free and it's it's not really about the person. But I think I always expect to be hosting almost. And when I'm there, I'm being hosted mm-hmm. and I allow myself to be hosted and be basically the best guest I possibly can be. Absolutely, yeah. So like I, I also, same thing. When I when I um when I was couch surfing and backpacking through France and I stayed with a guy named Christophe, like I got onto his schedule like I didn't stay at the house when he was gone in the day. I went and did some sightseeing and then we met up and we went and did stuff. And like, I try to integrate in their lives and experience the culture. Right. I think that's a big part about it. And I suppose, yeah, there's definitely the the longest I, I set myself, this is a very personal thing. And I don't know what your thoughts are on this. And I've broken this with you. (laughs) I have a rule of staying nowhere for free for more than three nights. Okay. And I feel like the logic there is it doesn't mean I can't stay in the same town, but for one person that's been so kind to offer me a place to sleep on a sofa or on a bed, I feel three nights is about the amount of time where you don't get under their hair. Mm-hmm. You don't really be a burden. And I feel for me, if I'm going to stay longer, either I pay to stay and that becomes a different transaction or I look to move elsewhere. With you, I think it was a bit different. Well, because you we're paid, friends. you paid, you pitched in for utilities because you knew you were definitely using quite a bit. Cambodia wasn't cheap yeah. for electricity, so you were sitting around in air conditioning all day and stuff, and you pitched in. So. <laughs> yeah, I did leave the house occasionally, but yeah, it was um, <laughs> it was a little bit different. But I do try not to stay for more than three nights. There's been exceptions where I've been basically asked. They've gone, "We want you to stay. We have this event coming up." This weekend. Okay. And that, for example, in Alaska, this wasn't through warm showers, but it was somebody that offered to host me. This is maybe another little side section to, to sleeping. Is Other than warm showers and couch surfing, very occasionally I will get asked on Instagram or through social media from people that have seen my bike tour or watched my YouTube videos, and they've gone, Adam, we see you're going through this town. We'd love to host you when you get to insert the town. And I've stayed with, I think, three or four people mm-hmm. through that very occasionally. But when it's happened, and then, um, I stayed with a... Yeah, it's insane. Then, and depending on the country too, like Turkey and Iran and stuff, you're going to get hosted all the time by people that are just like oh, waving you down yeah. on the side of the road, you know? These countries, particularly Iran, having never been there, um, I think you'll know a lot better mm-hmm. than I do. You've been to Iran a few times. That the Iranian hospitality, or, or a lot of these countries in and around that region of the world, are just full of people that want to host you. Yeah, and you know, almost get to a point where you're like, oh, I just want to be in the tent by myself. I'm so tired. <laughs> it could be, but especially the amount of tea that you're drinking and staying up really late at night. Have it you had be crazy? Have you ever had any bad experiences? One, <laughs> one. Yeah, was, was it that weird, okay. weird Canadian guy in Cambodia? <laughs> <laughs> that Canadian guy is similar. You know, he's an American in Thailand. But um, I use warm showers as well occasionally. I've used this a few times to not stay with people, but to go for like maybe coffee or to go out and for some food during the day. Right, yeah. And um, I've, I've emailed people and said, oh, I'm coming through your city. I don't need anywhere to stay. Maybe because I want to stay in a hotel or maybe because I, I don't know, I've made other plans. And I, I feel it's a really good way to meet people that live there. So I've used it like that once in Thailand, and I met this guy. I won't name him because uh, mm-hmm. no, I don't listen. name him. No, but he might listen. 
it's a bit awkward. But basically, this American guy that lived in Thailand was just really rude. He was just really awkward and rude. We got into, oh, he first picked us up from the hotel that I was staying at, which was lovely. I was like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we arrived at the hotel, he shouted at the uh, the lady that worked there, the Thai lady. He was like, how long have you been here? He didn't understand what he was saying. So he did that very American thing of saying it very, a little bit louder and like pointing at her. And um, yeah, so that was that. And then when we sat in the car with him, he just talked at us with the music really loud so we could really hear him, which was all like Western country music. And then we go into his house and it's just a bit weird. He had like naked pictures of women on his on his like wall, like page three wow. or Playboy model style pictures. Um, yeah, and he had, a, he had a wife who was Thai and a child that was about five years old. So I thought that was really weirdly inappropriate, <laughs> just having that on the wall. So weird. But we worked out that the reason he invited us was basically to hand us his, his food that he had a party two days before that was all barbecue type food and he didn't want to throw it away. So he gave it to us and it was like nice. cold microwave, the really horrible meats. And then he was like, would you like gravy? And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. And he was like, oh, he wasn't supposed to say yes. And then he was really begrudgedly made gravy. And I'm like, oh God, this is so awkward. <laughs> Did you guys end up staying there then or what? No, we didn't stay no. there. But that's the worst encounter I've had. Okay. And looking at it, you know what? It was just a bit weird. It isn't all that bad. Yeah. Have you had any bad encounters? I had one. Actually, it was my. It was couch surfing though. But I mean, they're, they're not really different in a sense. It was my very first time hosting. And surprisingly, I even hosted again after it. I thought it can't be worse. It was a guy from China, and he was coming to Korea, where I was teaching and living at the time. And my very first time I ever got a request was somebody coming for for five days or four nights or five nights. I don't remember. But it was like you said, three nights is about as long as you want somebody there. Because for the same reason that if you can't stand the person, they're gone after three nights. So it's not a huge deal. But like this guy... And he wasn't bad in any sense, except he, he didn't want to do anything. So I just felt like, wow, I'm really just a hotel. And in Korea, man, I had a small apartment where there was a, a sofa beside my bed, probably like one and a half meters away. That was it. That was the room. And then there was like another little area where there was a sly, very small kitchen type thing and bathroom. And this guy didn't ever want to come out. So I'd be like, I'm going out with friends tonight for, for food and stuff. Do you want to come? Oh, no, tomorrow I go see this and this. I was like, oh, okay. And then the next day, I'm like, do you want to come out and do this? He's like, no, tonight I just research for this and this place. And tomorrow I go do that. I'm like, It was a negative experience in the only sense. Is it wasn't like the kid wasn't nice. It was just he had no yeah. intention of doing anything with me, getting to know me at all. He just was there for a place to sleep and save money. And, and that's, think- that kind of goes against the purpose in my mind. It's not. It's got to yeah. be more than that. That's the big difference, though, I feel, between warm showers and couch surfing. Everyone on a bike is on a bit of a mission. They're moving. They're not just going there to stay and use it like a hotel. And we have the same things in common, more or less. Yeah. So you you get somebody on couch surfing and you've got a massive wide range, which has its benefits for sure. But for me, knowing that people get what you are about as a bike tourer, that I'm on a bit of a mission, I'm cycling from here to here, I probably haven't showered for 10 days and that's okay mm-hmm. because I'm about to shower when I get there and I will consume 
more food than any human has ever consumed in one night. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) If that means going to a local market, which I love, especially Southeast Asia, someone's going to take you to a market, the best thing you can do. It's so good. That's basically it. If someone can take you out or have a beer with you or just share their time or drink tea with you or anything, it's a a real gift. Yeah. yeah. So on the same note we were talking about earlier, you're saying about Hull. I'm just in the process of buying a house in Chelsea, which is about 10 kilometers north of Ottawa, right near the Gatineau Park. So very countryside, amazing. And um, yeah, we'll be hosting guests there too. So that that is always an option. We have a big, big double car garage for fixing bikes and repairing anything that needs to be fixed. So well, when it comes back to normal, mate, and hopefully when we say back to normal, the world. At the moment. So I don't think anyone's going to be coming through anywhere. No, it's going to be and, a year, right? Like at this yeah, rate. Yeah, we, we hope so. But it's I think it's worth mentioning that, I suppose, because the world is a bit weird right now. Mm-hmm. And talking about all these things we've enjoyed doing when you can't do it. Yeah, the freedoms we've had to be able to travel the world and stay at people's houses. Like now, would you have guest over no you wouldn't so actually just before like things started getting really bad there was actually a guy who is um i'm going to release the podcast soon i was supposed to record when he gets to ottawa and he's been cycling across canada and he's planning this massive tour all the way up to Tuktoyaktuk and then down to like ushuai and i was like when you get to ottawa you've got a place to stay we'll record an episode when i did know he was in ottawa area he said actually i'm, I'm being hosted right now but if I decide to stay longer, I would love it. And then I had to be like, actually, my wife and I talked about it and she's not super comfortable because of the virus to have Absolutely. guests right now. And so I had to make that call and I had to be like, sorry, man. But we, so we recorded over a phone, but we we're only 10 kilometers away from each other. <laughs> it was kind of weird. I think for anyone, depends on the country you're in and the advice, but borders are closing. Yeah. And we're recording this. What's the date now? It's the 26th of March. And in the UK, the advice right now is to not leave your home. So there's going to be no bike touring for me or for anybody else. And it's really, I was only in Kenya Mm -hmm. earlier on this week. And I had to leave Kenya because the borders were closing to get to the UK. So I luckily got out of the country in time and wasn't stranded in a country where if it hits there, if it hits anywhere in Africa, it's going to be huge. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, everybody's dealing with this stuff right now too. Like my wife and I both have flights booked to Europe. She has a return flight booked for this summer. I'm registered for two bike races um, that are not yet canceled. So I can't, haven't got money back yet, but I'm sure they will be. And um, I mean, some of the other big events have already called it, you know, transcontinental races canceled the race for this year um, race across Europe canceled and on and on I got a email I think from Couchsurfing and I think I got one from Warm Showers as well basically just saying we understand that in these times people will have to change and I can't I don't know exactly what it said I, can't, I don't want to quote it because mm-hmm. I'm not reading it basically everyone is Airbnbs and everywhere else depending on their different countries rules at the moment and they just everything's in close down so I think for us to have shared all these experiences in the past in people's homes, I really do hope in the future we are in a place where we can still do that. Yeah. And I think that we don't know that right now. The world could change in six months to a year's time. And all this advice we're talking about, these memories we've got of staying with strangers, people could be, for a couple of years to come, still very worried about yeah. getting the virus. So, so uh, you're saying yeah. if you're worried about all these things – 
that takes us to our next topic, which is camping, right? Yeah. So if you don't, <laughs> you don't want to stay with people because you're too worried about getting ill. And once the, once the restrictions are all removed and you're able to travel a bit more freely, I think a really good option is wild camping, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are campsites paid, like Europe, I think is great for paid campsites too. Like if you want to just have an easier tour, you want to make sure you have shower access and stuff, you can get fantastic paid campsites. I think if we're talking Europe, we're specifically talking France, Belgium, Austria. Germany. um, Yeah, yeah, we're really, well, yeah, Germany to a point, but really very Western Europe. As soon as you start heading into Spain, not really seeing any campsites there. Ah, okay. In, and towards Eastern Europe, I'm sure they exist here and there, but they're nowhere near. The, fr- the French the French love a campsite. Yeah. But it's because, it, the only time I've ever had anything stolen from whilst camping with a bike is whilst I've been in a French campsite. Oh, yeah? So there's, there's a risk I feel there. Camp, camping is lovely. It's easy. And I do like staying in a tent. But, and you get a shower. But the risk is you're around lots of people. And uh, when I say something's stolen, I just washed some clothes and left a T-shirt out to dry overnight just on, on my bike. And someone had stolen my T-shirt off my bike, which is minor, I suppose. The, camp, the tent next to me, which was somebody with a vehicle and the big tent had had their electronics stolen, that had loads of things stolen. Oh, wow. So, so it does, yeah, I suppose you're camping whilst you're definitely been seen people know you're there because you're paying to stay there which means there's a little higher risk of something a little bit dodgy happening that's right so then stealth camping i mean how would you distinguish between stealth camping and wild camping so stealth camping i feel is where nobody knows you're there you're probably not meant to really be there and you're probably close to a built-up area like a town or something yeah so yeah, most likely. You could be, yeah. I think stealth camping, particularly is an American term. So a lot of America, as in, yeah, USA states don't have, um, they have laws where you're not really meant to camp. And it really does mm-hmm. depend on where you are and the type of land. I know like in Canada, you have, um, what is it called? Queen, the Queen's land? What's that called? That rule where you're allowed to sleep on sovereign territory. I guess, yeah. Like um, I'm not 100% sure. I would just camp anywhere. <laughs> There's a rule in Canada, yeah, I can't remember what it's called, but basically around lakes and certain areas. Oh, I should Google that whilst we're talking. But mm-hmm. um, there's certain territories in, in Canada where you're allowed to uh, camp. And um, in the USA, it's called BLM land, Bureau of Land Management land. Okay. And uh, basically, this is land owned by the state. It's not privately owned. And the, then, therefore, the laws are different. And usually... 99% of the time, you're allowed to camp on this land. Oh, crown, it, we call it crown land. That's right. Crown, crown land. land. Yeah. So I would be going through Canada. I would have somebody come up to me and say, this is crown land. You're okay to sleep there. And I'm like, sweet. And usually it's areas around lakes. That's usually mm. crown land. I seem to find. Um, in the USA, some states have loads of BLM land. Loads of states, some states have zero so it okay. really does depend on what state you're in to the level of wild camping. Uh, somewhere like, oh, it's so dependent. So stealth camping, again, the difference between stealth camping and wild camping. Um, I, so to go to wild camping, 
I feel wild camping is camping where you are in full nature. The yeah. chances of you being seen by anybody is very, very low. Yeah, you're zero. pooping in the woods, you're digging a little hole and burying it and cooking yeah. and being bear aware, these things. Exactly that. So in North America, exactly that. A lot of Alaska and Canada and, and the Rockies and so on as you head south. Um, or even the desert. I would say camping in the middle of the desert in Nevada is wild camping. It's not stealth. I just pitch up side of the road That's and right. don't really worry too much because it's a desert and there's, I can camp anywhere, more, I feel. Whereas if I'm getting into California and I'm deciding to stealth camp somewhere in a cornfield, that's on the borderline, a little bit stealth, a little bit wild. Yeah, I don't want somebody to see me, but I'll happily cook some food if I'm in a cornfield because I'll make an assessment that no one's probably going to see me in the middle of this field somewhere. Um, and that's just a, a thing I do. So for some people will not cook. They won't have any light on. They don't want to be mm-hmm. discovered. And I can understand that fear. But equally, I think if you ever do get discovered, the best bit of advice you can do is turn a light on if it's nighttime. Turn a light on, super friendly, and just cooperate. It's happened to me a couple of times. Um, never in the USA, but it happened to me in Japan once and it happened uh, maybe twice in Japan and then once in uh, Thailand. And they're probably some of my most interesting stories with wild camping. We'll yeah. And I think it's them. a, it's the same as it's that old saying, you know, it's easier to beg forgiveness than ask permission. If you ask, they're going to say no. But then at the end, when they're, we're there in the middle of the night and somebody's giving you shit, they're like, you say sorry. And they're like, okay, tomorrow leave. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so when it to me in Thailand, I was sleeping in a rubber tree plantation which during the daytime was completely empty. Thought, oh, sweet, this will be cool. No snakes, no no scorpions. <laughs> Got my tent up. And then in the middle of the night, I just saw a flashlight shining on the tent. I was like, oh, what is this? So I put my light on, stepped out and was like saying hello in Thai. So what This guy looked at me with his flashlight and ran off into the distance. He's <laughs> just like absolutely <laughs> panicked. And I'm like, oh, God, what's going on here? Just got back in the tent. An hour later, he returned with a big gang of people. They had their scooters, their little moped scooters. He had a machete and a dogs with him. I think he had two dogs. And I'm like, oh, God, come on. He's brought the cavalry here. And Do you think in hindsight when this happened, you should have probably just packed up and left and gone somewhere else? Oh, well, when he first ran off into the distance, I just was a little – I was tired. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I think that I thought we've been seen now. Um, I, I said hello. I was very friendly. If he comes again, I'll just do the same. So he came again, and as I got out the tent, I point and I said hello, and he was like relieved. He was so scared. And it turns out, and he looked at the bike, and he was like, "Oh, okay, okay." And he didn't see the bike first time. And the guy, it turns out, was working on the rubber tree plantation, adding oil into the rubber, and he works at night. So he works the same forest every single night with his flashlight on. Next minute, he gets a guy in the middle of the night jump out at him with a torch and goes, what a cat, and he just runs off. <laughs> so, Probably thought you are some kind of demon or something. <laughs> yeah, and that's the case. If you see a tent, and you think about it from their side, their point of view, if you see a tent in the middle of the night, you're going to be like, oh, who's in that? I don't want to go and disturb that tent. Yeah. Because anybody in there, a crazy killer. Your mind goes to these places. So generally, they're going to be more scared of you than you should be of anybody else. Yeah. That's how I see it. 
Let's talk about choosing our stealth camping spots because I think there's a there's a lot to be said about where you camp for stealth camping. Obviously, like if you're trying to stealth camp and you camp right on the top of a hill, that's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So for me, it re- okay. So let's say deciding on a on a spot. And I guess this could, actually this could tie into any kind of camp, wild camping and stealth camping, because I think location so I is really important. With time, I become a lot more confident with it and just had a, fe- a good feeling and a bit, of, a bit more chilled out about it. But if you're just getting into it, I would say time is seldom wasted in reconnaissance. That is a really, um, yeah, that's a big military phrase mm-hmm. is to always spend time in your reconnaissance. And the tools we have now are unbelievable. We've got, okay, let's go to paper maps. They're, they're amazing. They've got all the topographical information, generally up to date, and it'll show you all the woods and forests and give you a ton of information. But let's say you don't have that. You've just got your phone in your pocket. You can go onto Google Maps and you can look at satellite views or you can look at just normal views and look for patches of green. You're looking for green areas, bits of trees, areas you think Oh, there could be a lake there. You're looking for fences. You've even got street view in many countries, mm-hmm. which will give you the view an option. And I've definitely done this. I've definitely looked at the Google Maps. I've used at street view. I've, in China, I'd use Beidou Maps and do the same thing. I'd look at their, their equivalent of Google and look at their street view mapping. And on Maps Me, which is a common mapping app, which if, I, if you're on a bike tour, I highly recommend you use. So it's on Android and Apple, um, maps.me. In there, it has very little topographical and green information. But if you do see some green on there, it could be really useful. And if you just mm-hmm. search camping, in countries like China, some people highlight wild camping spots, which can be really useful. Another thing I use to recce is a another app I use particularly in North America, but it exists everywhere, and it's called iOverland. Yeah. yeah, that's an iPhone app. I think only exclusively, but there are equivalents. I think um, what's the equivalent on Android? I can't remember the top of my head, but there's a few others. But um, as an iPhone user, I use iOverland. I think I may have had to. I think it's free. Maybe pay two pounds for it or something like that. But on that app, it's a big database, generally of people on motorbikes or in campers. But you can see where people have placed camper vans and slept for free. Mm-hmm. And if you put a camper van there, you can absolutely fit a bicycle with a tent there. And particularly going from Alaska through Canada, iOverlander provided me with so much information. And some of my favorite wild camping spots were next to lakes that somebody said, idyllic spot not disturbed next to a lake and uh, it was amazing so yeah so so there's a lot of how i would start looking yeah Um, and if you're on the road let's say your phone isn't working all the spots you've looked at aren't good and you're still camping i think there's nothing wrong at that point of occasionally knocking on somebody's door and saying hello i'm currently cycling through would you mind if i slept on your your land on your garden or your yard. I've used that tactic a handful of times, never been turned away. And actually I got turned away once in France again. Always the French. <laughs> but um, yeah, I've used it in Belgium. I've used that in Thailand. If you're just really stuck, sometimes asking for help 
it can feel a little bit like your heart's beating when you first do it, but it's led to, for me, some amazing experiences. Well, I think it's kind of like when you, you stealth camp your first time, you're also kind of nervous because you're like, oh, what if I get caught? What if I get in trouble? Like, it's the same kind of feeling, you know, you're, you're doing something different. Yes, I think so. Do you remember that time we camped in Cambodia? Yeah, should we talk about that? Let's do it. Yeah, what, what, what would we class that as? I would consider that, I guess... I would just say wild camping because, but we had access to toilets. Should we should we describe what it was and then see what other people would think? Yeah, so, so. essentially we, we were cycling down towards Kampot from Phnom Penh and we stopped at a temple and just asked if we could stay there for the night and camp. And they were cool with it. The locals were a little more mystified and problematic, but we essentially pitched a tent on a piece of grass area in the temple complex and then used their big barrel to shower ourselves off and um, they had toilets. So it was, I wouldn't say wild camping because you had toilets and stuff, but... Yeah, I feel like that's hosted camping. That's so really like, say, yeah, hosted camping. That's a good word for it. Yeah, it's a, I've never heard that it's said either by anybody else, but that's what I would call it. It's hosted camping where... You have been given the safety and permission of the person to camp there. And if it's got a toilet and mm -hmm. we were off food, mate, but you know that in the morning, oh, in the morning we had cooked, lots of food with them. Yeah. Yeah. When we, we cooked our own food and was about to go. And then as we'd packed up a load of the locals, I think it might've been a Sunday morning or something, a load of the locals had gathered together and got a huge buffet with about, 30, 40 different plates full of different mm -hmm. Cambodian food. And they were getting it blessed. Oh. They were having it blessed the, we, by feeding the monks and getting blessed for the act. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. So there was all these prayers, all these prayers. And we were so full of banana and oatmeal. And, and we were like, oh, we can't say no to these people that had offered us to join them. And it, the offer to join them was more, I feel like, breaking bread with a, with a group yeah. of strangers. It's, it's one of the most like common human traits we it's have. It's a beautiful thing. We all, we all eat, we all sleep, and we, we all like music. These are like things that everybody likes. Or, uh, or we all like to get drunk, depending on the country you're in. <laughs> that's like or all the above. I think, I think that's what I love most about cycle touring is just like eating food and interacting with people. And like, you know, one of the things about being hosted is you get to try all these different foods, things that we would never have tried that day. You know, we actually ate some really interesting food on that, uh, that three day oh, trip. So we left with our bellies so full of food. And then that day, I think that was the day uh, we cycled to the coast from that day, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. So even that, like when we cycled to the coast, we slept uh, on like a platform by the beach which is kind of a bit wild camping, but we had permission and I think we actually paid to stay there. I would, I would so say, yeah, like a, that was like paid camping, but it was like we used the gazebo as our sleeping place. Yeah. yeah. It was like a little platform, wasn't it, off the beach? It was so like uncomfortable for me though because all I had, I didn't have a, I didn't have an air mattress and I didn't have a, a sleeping mat, so I was using a yoga mat and that was the shittiest <laughs> sleeps. <laughs> yoga mat was not good. Sleeping, so uh, I then um, I spent a lot of time wild camping. Uh, I cycled through Spain about two years ago, and the, my friend Ollie, who I cycled with, his his sleeping mat popped on the first night, so he went to the beach and bought an inflatable lilo, which which do you know what a lilo is like a yeah, inflatable yeah. for the kids yeah. that, for people to play with in the water. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a big bed one. He bought that. 
it took about 30 minutes to blow up because you had to like pinch the end and like blow it up so slowly. And it was so squeaky. It's like the squeakiest yeah, thing yeah. in that I was so uncomfortable and after a day, just resorted to sleeping on the floor again. In my own defense, though, in that occasion, I only had the yoga mat because all my camping stuff had already been shipped to Canada because I was in the process of moving to Canada when I took the job in Cambodia. And so I was just like, well, if I want to do this, I need yeah. to use a yoga mat. And that was it. You want to talk? Let's talk about what happened that night at the temple. That was kind of weird. I mean, it was um, an experience and it's yeah. probably not that uncommon, but it's it's good to talk about it to let people be aware of it. It was in it was in Cambodia, which is the first point I think to make for this whole story to have that background of what's happened in Cambodia in in its very recent history with the the genocide of uh, with the Khmer Rouge. I think it was like seventy five percent of the population. Was it, was it that high? It was about a third. Um, I think a, a third of the population was killed. Yeah. So a third of the population is is, is a huge amount of people. And the people that still live with this, um, I feel like a, a caution. And there's definitely a hope in the country yeah. that I felt, but a, a caution amongst people of all ages. Of yeah, bad your, things why, happen at night. Yeah. We, me and Chris had asked to sleep in this, this temple, as we previously said. And later that night, this lady came up to us and was basically just saying, would you like to stay with me? You can't stay here. And we were both pretty keen on camping. We, we were at first, we were like, yeah, we come over. She's like, invite us over for some dessert, watermelon and fruit and stuff. And we're like, yeah, well, let's eat our food and we'll get ready and cleaned up. And then we'll come over and have some dessert. That's great, right? Yeah. But then it realized that really her intention was you're not sleeping here. And I feel like for us, we could have gone along with her and maybe seen what it's about. But there's two of us and... She had lots of children with her, and I just didn't feel she was, fully She was super aggressive about it, too, which was kind of weird, right? Like, she was super intent on us not staying outside. She's like, you will be murdered. You will be killed. Like, you don't want to stay out here. It's too dangerous. Yeah. Didn't start at that place. She originally just started by inviting us for dessert. And then as we kind of were like, yeah, we'll, we'll come. And then later, she was like, you're not staying here. And it just escalated to a point where she was like, you will get killed if you stay here. Yeah. We're like, nobody knows we're here other than you. <laughs> what, are, why you are you going to kill us? <laughs> yeah. And then she's, then there's some random guy. She was, she told us that this guy was a police officer. So you need to give him your passports. And we, we then were like, he was in normal clothes. We didn't see any identification. And we were like, we don't know if he's a police officer. So we're staying here, I'm afraid. And then we just got into our tent yeah. and closed it. And that was the end of it. We yeah, just they, they the stood tent. there angry for a while and then they just kind of walked off. Yeah. We spoke to the monk and he was happy with us to stay. And I feel in that situation, we stood our ground without escalating it ourselves by being like smiley and happy and just kind of being insistent on what we wanted, but not being like, I think, just being respectful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It worked <clears> out all right. You, I think that's how you deal with most of these problems where people have an issue with you is if you get, I don't know, caught by the police, be very respectful. You apologize a lot and just say, explain what you're doing. And generally they'll let you go without a ticket. Yeah. 
Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used their race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Magnin in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. And um, yeah, that, so that was more like, as you said, hosted camping. And I like the title of that. And then um, the next night we did paid camping where we slept in a gazebo. And that was super good because it rained like hell that night. Yeah, yeah. I know that. But before yeah, all that happened, we had a great time because we could just order beer from the lady. So she just kept bringing us beer. And oh, we had a duck. the people in the gazebo duck. next to us were having a hell of a party. And we were just like standing in there eating food with them and dancing and... <laughs> Oh, that was such a good day. Such a good day. That's funny. It's all in my YouTube. That episode is on the YouTube channel if anybody wants to watch it. It's, uh, I'm sure Chris will put a link to that episode. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I think it was episodes. It's one of the Cambodia episodes. So if you want to go through, search Adam Hugel on YouTube, you can, uh, you can watch me and Chris when we go wild camping. And you get maybe a few, you'll get to see all of what we described there but in actual video form. Exactly. Yeah, I think for, for me in the future with, with regards to camping, I, and I'm looking at doing a lot of hiking and a lot of walking, and I think that the, the very similar rules apply, and I've done a lot of hiking in the past, and being able to wild camp on a bike, I think hiking is even easier, yeah. if anything, but doing it on a bike, the thing that one question I get asked a lot is how do you keep your bike safe whilst you are camping? And it's quite a, a very common consideration. Just, unless you're going to put it inside your tent, which I highly don't recommend, <laughs> I feel like a bag is made to be outdoors. They're made to be rained on. And as long as you protect your seat cover, and sometimes I do put a little bit of plastic over it to keep it protected if possible. But if it does get rained on, it's not the end of the world. One thing I've heard people do, I've never done this myself, is tie a bit of like fishing line so I'm talking really thin but really strong line to like either an ankle or to your hand, to your arm whilst you sleep. So you sleep and if somebody pulls your bike, it will wake you up. Yeah. Yeah, you can do that. I use um, I use a travel cable locks, the ones that just um, extend, they wind out. And it's about uh, 60 centimeters long. And I, I usually just lock it to something simple if I, if I need to. It's pretty lightweight lock. It's not going to stop any determined thief. Yeah, but I think if you wild if you wild camp properly or stealth camp properly, nobody's gonna be coming upon you generally, right? So yeah, I think the places where this is an interesting exception is when I camped in Japan. So in Japan, I I put my tent everywhere, mate. I I didn't really 
wild camp, as you would say, an awful lot. Because Japan's a fairly urban and built-up country. Yeah. So I would often put my tent, and this is quite common amongst other Japanese cyclists and even people in cars, outside the little service stop stations, which are called Michi no Eki. That's the name of the services. And they have I don't really think they've got these in any other country. They are, during the day, they're kind of like services for people to get food and maybe tourist information. And then there's a toilet and a shower room sometimes. Mm -hmm. And there's always Wi-Fi there. And at nighttime, they close down all the shops, but the toilets and Wi-Fi remains on. So I put my tent next to the building once all the shops have closed. So there's no new people coming there to the, the building. And then I would make sure I leave before first light when all the shops open. Ah. Um, I would often put my tent up there and sometimes there'd already be another Japanese or foreign cyclist already sleeping next to it. So there'd be a couple of you sleeping there. I'd cook my food. It'd be on a pavement. So for somewhere like that, you need a tent that is, is erecting, uh, self, self-erecting as opposed to one you need to use pegs to keep it up. So, um, yeah, that's that Japan was somewhere I would definitely sleep in the view of people. And I always have two uh, kind of thoughts on wild camping. You're either in view of the world and the world can see you or you're completely hidden and secret and nobody ever wants to see you. And it's, if you're camping seen by the world and you get used to that, there is quite a freedom with that. that yeah. You feel like, oh, I can sleep anywhere. I can just throw my tent here and I'm okay. Yeah. In 2016, I did a quick little tour from southern Sweden to Berlin. And actually, on that tour, I did both. I did a one night of wild camping, one night of stealth camping. And uh, the wild camping was sweet because in Denmark, they have these national trails. And about every 25 kilometers, there's a lean-to that you can camp in. And there's a fire pit. And there's running water and there's a water supply. There's a wood store, a supply as well for fire. And uh, it's just amazing. So well organized and developed. So I stayed in one of those. And then the next night I, I stealth camped in a farm field kind of right along the tree line. And I was just paranoid the whole night. It was my first time stealth camping on a bike. And I could have gone further away. I think from the road would have been better because the lights kept making me like every time I saw car lights go by, I'd kind of like pucker up you know <laughs> thinking oh i'm gonna get caught yeah it can be like that sometimes i've definitely had that at moments but with time i think it just comes less and less yeah. mm-hmm. uh, south korea is another place where i quite enjoyed camping in sight of people i don't really have to describe them but they're like wooden platform pagodas I would, I, yeah i'd often just throw my tent under one of them and one day i stepped out i was on the coast um on the east coast of south korea and this lady came out and gave me a load of kimchi and kimbap and loads of food, basically, that they'd eaten and they just had leftovers. And they were like, oh, would you like some food? And it was all contained, packaged in little, like, takeaway containers and oh, gave nice. it to me and my partner who I was cycling with. So this, like, hiding in plain sight often leads to people coming up and interacting with you in a positive way, depending mm-hmm. on the country. In, in Cambodia as well, I slept on a lot of them little platforms. So um, it was de- oh, the, the, them platforms in Cambodia, they are amazing, mate. Do you know where they... Um, Those are the, the ones farmers- in the, the farm field ones, yeah. Yes. The farmers use them when it's too hot and they're out there having, having a rest or when they're working the fields during the colder months. They don't go home often. They stay in these little 
basically empty wooden shacks. And you go past loads of them that are just not being used at that time. And I'd throw my tent in there and sleep in there mm-hmm. overnight and be gone for the flight. Yeah, and the uh, also the other thing is, um, aside from just wild camping, but when you're when choosing a camping spot, I think there's a few things you really need to consider. Like one of the things is you don't want to be in a gully because if it starts raining at night, all of a sudden you could be soaking oh, soaking yeah. wet. Choose your spot so you have a you're on top of a little bit of high ground, not necessarily on the top of a hill. Hopefully, flat. you want somewhere as flat as possible. These make sense, but mate, I've got a very good story of me camping in a in Nevada. I put my tent under yeah, like a little gazebo. It's like a barbecue area mm-hmm. with a roof. So a baseball field. Yep. And there was all, so I was like, just into the state, really high altitude. I think it's like 2,000 meters above, above sea level. So really quite cold at nighttime, really hot during the day, cold at night. And as I was sleeping, I won't, I could feel rain in the middle of the night against the tent. I'm like, how is it raining? I'm I'm under a cover. How, how is it raining? And then I had a look out the tent and I realized the sprinklers were going off all around where I was sleeping. <laughs> and it mate, the sprinklers, it was like it was like being in a typhoon. My tent was drenched. My I had a, oh in this little pagoda thing as well, there was a plug socket where I was charging my power bank. So this power bank's getting soaked, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, get, getting that into my bag. I dragged my tent across away from the sprinklers. And then that night, because it was so cold, my tent froze. And it was like being in a freezer. The tent was just frozen solid with ice all over it. Mental. So, um, yeah, maybe you got to be aware of what's going on. So you were in somewhere where there are clearly sprinklers for farming and of some sort. Yeah. And you were just caught in the unaware. Um, I think the same can be said, like in Southeast Asia, when you're choosing a camp spot, like I don't know how many people I've talked to where they've camped on beaches and yeah. I hate it because in general, if you camp on a nice beach, you just can have sand everywhere inside your tent. I agree. And then you get those freaking sand flies that bite the yeah. shit out of your ankles and stuff the whole I evening. Agree so much. People, you know, camping on the sand on a beach is pure Instagram. It's rubbish. It, I hate it because once you get sand in your tent, it gets everywhere and sand is not comfortable. Maybe camping just before the beach on like if there's a grassy area yeah, or if there's, that can be nice because waking up next to the sea can be a really beautiful experience. But sitting on sand, I am not a fan of that. No. It is horrible. But yeah. yeah, there we go. And the same thing near, near, like, if you're close to, like, streams or ponds and stuff, sometimes you don't want to be too close because you get a lot of flies and mosquitoes around that area. So if you're a little bit further away from the wet, you're, you're a bit... A, fa- a fast-flowing river can be really loud, which sometimes is nice. I've been next to rivers that are, like, so loud, you're like, how am I going to sleep? This is crazy. But when you're tired, you'll sleep anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's definitely, um, it's nice to be close uh, to a fresh water supply if you can. So just be able to provide yourself with water um, and then to maybe do some laundry. I won't do it directly in the water. Whenever I wash my pots, I collect the water and wash everything a little bit away, which is always good advice. And I think one thing we should explain is where do you go for a poop? Does a bear shit in the woods? I think, yeah, mate. A lot of people will be like happy about camping and like, where do they go and do the toilet? 
But um, I think for me, if you ever are needing to, carrying a small shovel with you yeah. or a little trowel is the way forward. Either that or you're bagging it. You're putting it in a bag and you're taking it out with you. Whatever you take in, you take out. And there's definitely times where you'll need to do that. So um, Yeah, what I do what I've done in the past, like um is just use my heel, some depending how how tough the ground is, but scrape in the dirt, make a little bit of a hole, and then um take a stick and yeah. push it in there and then cover it up. There's definitely really small fold away camping shovels, which will do a much better job. Yeah. Because sometimes ground can be rock hard solid and you don't want to be just doing as long as you're not doing a surface lay is what i'm saying if you, if somebody's laying on a surface that's really <laughs> really selfish and it gives everybody a bad name so don't be that guy yeah especially because if you do that too there's going to be toilet paper and stuff involved and if you're leaving the the shit on top there's going to be other stuff too and it's just nasty it's nasty and it attracts and animals and it's just gross. yeah and, and people will then know that these bike tours are basically just poo, poo levers which is uh is not a good thing to be known as so do the right thing and don't poop on the surface what's uh what's the best place you've ever wild camped oh man is there one that you're oh. just like immediately comes to mind um my mind pretty much instantly goes to alaska and canada yeah and it's almost a blur because so many of them places all blend into each other because they're all amazing. Mm. But camping in northern Alaska, camping, yeah, it's, it's so easy and so beautiful um, with forests and lakes. And, yeah, I think maybe Yukon, northern Canada, some one of the nicest campsites I've had, okay. camping spots. And I was pinching myself every day. Oh, one of the best views I've had that was in Alaska and North America, Thailand. I cycled from, oh, what's the name of the town? Um, to the, Towards the Myanmar border over what's called the Death Highway. Mesot? Mesot, yes. Yeah. So cycling towards Mesot. Yeah, so um, going over towards Mesot from Tak, mm. which um, is this, there's only one road. It's the Highway 12. And I camped in one of the national parks halfway there. And the camps, it was waking up in the morning to an, an inversion, all the clouds underneath you. And I got the drone up and it was one of the best like drone wake up I've ever had. Okay. So good. Yeah. But that was just by the side of the highway. It was not like, it wasn't hidden away in the woods. It was very much just like in a little lay-by, tent up because it was too dark to cycle. And the next morning was just quiet, peaceful, beautiful. Mm -hmm. What about you? My best wild camping spot was um, in Sweden. I uh, On one of the holidays, it's called Sports Week. In Sweden, they have a one-week holiday in, um, in the fall. Uh, and I love in Sweden, they use week numbers for the whole year. So it's always week 34. Week 34 is Sports Week. Ah, that's good. Or no, sorry. Week 34 is the um, sports break is week eight in the in February or something. Week 34 is uh, your fall break. But anyways, it was week 34. And I ran from, I took a train out from my town I lived in in the south of Sweden, uh, about 100 kilometers out. And then I took the Skaneleden, which is the Swedish trail network, all the way back to my town. And um, Sweden has just beautiful moss. Like when you're in the forest and you're in these pine forests and stuff, 
And it's just moss as far as you can see. And then there's just a trail and it's just phenomenal. So good. Yeah. So it's, it's like having, it's like having a down bed underneath your sleeping bag and air mattress. Oh, yes. oh, so good. What do you think is the best and worst countries for wild camping? Oh, I think the best has got to be like, in my mind, Sweden's got to be up there just because you're legally allowed to camp on anybody's property anywhere in the country. Ah, that's such a good law. I love that. I've heard you mention that in a previous podcast to another guy. Almansraten? Yeah, Almansraten. Yeah, so it's all man's right. Everybody's right to access and camp anywhere. Right. There's some minor rules to it. Like you can't put your tent right beside somebody's house without their permission. But if you were, let's say, 200 meters away, you're allowed to. And you can't leave your tent in one location for more than, I think, 24 hours straight. And you have to move it by like a hundred meters or something. There's like some various rules, but they're not like super strict. Anywhere. That shouldn't be just Sweden. Yeah. But for your world camping anywhere, in a lot of countries, it's illegal. And I am of the opinion of these laws, as long as you're respectful, if there is a landowner, if you can ask permission, do it. But if not, if you can't find them or don't know where they are, just don't be a dick. Basically, yeah. make sure you um, you don't leave crap. You don't have a big open fire. You're not staying there and having a big gingangooli for the next two three days and leaving loads of trash. That mm-hmm. you are basically just a good person. Don't be yeah, don't be a dick. I think that's good advice. That night in Sweden, I was um, on the top of a big cliff area that there's a there was a lake down below and. I had run uphill for quite a while to get up there and stuff. And there was a couple Danish soldiers in this, in one of these Swedish camping spots, but it was like lots of moss and beautiful around. And I just pitched up my tent and, um, talked to these two Danish soldiers that were just doing a hike there. And they were just using army kit because I guess it's good stuff. And they were just up for like a five day hike, two buddies. And you can't be free. No, <laughs> free. beautiful too. Yeah. Um, what do you think the worst worst country you've heard of or come across for camping, wild camping? I don't know. Um, My instant thoughts go straight to Vietnam. Yeah. Vietnam is a nightmare for it because there's just rice paddies everywhere. You can't put your tent up anywhere because, well, in very few places, maybe a little bit on the mountainous areas in the border regions. But once you're in, like, Vietnam's so thin as well. It's such a densely populated country for the size. And people that it's illegal to wild camp and it's still a communist country. Mm-hmm. And people follow the rules. People don't just do their own thing all that much. So if you're wild camping, people will, the police will come and they'll move you. And I think it can be similar in China. But in China, in my experience... It, it depends very much where you are in China. There was enough wild space. It's a big enough country that you can always find a spot to throw a tent. Mm-hmm. I think there's some other things to consider too. Like if you're going to be doing a lot of wild camping, you want to make sure your tent has like a darker colored uh, material for it. You know, you don't want a big shiny orange tent. Maybe if you're going to be some trying to trying to hide from people. Like an orange tent is great if you're going to go and do some winter mountaineering and you want to get spotted by search and rescue. Mm-hmm. But it's not if you are trying to blend in. So I've agree. I've always had green tents, always green. Things like self-supported, I've already mentioned that, making sure it stands up on its own. For me, I have a one-person tent for just me, and it is tight. Oh, 
it's tight. It's a Mont 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 Belton, and I am. Yeah, I bring all my bags into the tent with me. It's a it's mm-hmm. a thing I set myself. Not everybody does this, but I've heard far too many stories of people having their stuff stolen. Yeah, passport, everything, and you do not want that. So anything you're not willing to lose, do not leave it outside your tent when you sleep. And for me, having my bags around me just makes me feel happy. Yeah, I have a one and a half man tarp tent. Kind of expensive. Fantastic tent, but my wife and I have used it a couple times and we can just fit in two air mattresses or like a roll-up mat and an air mattress or whatever, but it's tight and it's long enough that we can also put the bags at the back one end of them and just kind of stack them all up. So it's it's pretty decent, but it's it's a very snug for two people. You know what else we haven't mentioned? It just made me think about that. Baby Is bags? Baby bags, yeah. yeah. Baby and you can use a shelter like a tarp as well in conjunction. That's a really good lightweight option. If somebody's looking to go and you know you're going to be somewhere where there's very limited chance of too much rain, but even if there is a lot of rain, I, I when I was in the I was in the British Army for eight years and we never used tents. Never. You only carried a a, a bivy bag, a sleeping bag, and a, and basically a, a we call it a poncho. Yeah, but it's not. A non-wearable poncho. Back in the day, they were wearable, but now it's just a square of camouflage waterproof material, which is basically a tarp. Yeah. In real. And this tarp, you, you use bungees or you use string to tie it up to trees, and it keeps you protected. Yeah. Same thing with me. Um, in my military experience in Canada, was um, bivy bags. Now Canada is a little different because we do a lot of Arctic winter stuff. So in the winter, we have um, big tents that have a center pole and we have a fire going the whole time inside the tent. Like, uh, you, you run a Coleman stove to heat it. I thought you just built, built igloos. No, no, that's, um, that's further north. But in general, yeah, you're using a ground sheet to make a lean to of some sort. And, and it's up to the individual soldier how they want to make theirs. And then you have a, you have your bivy bag. And yeah. they were fantastic, except ours were those, I mean, the older ones, they were Gore-Tex, they were heavy. They weren't light. Yeah. They took a lot of space. And military sleeping bags were pretty heavy duty as well. And they took a ton yeah. of space. I've actually been researching bivy bags a lot because of the upcoming races I was supposed to slash hoping to do this summer. Right. And I've came down to a couple that are kind of my, my considerations. One of those is the Outdoor Research Helium Bivy. So it's got a it's got a pole in it. So you actually have some space above your face and you don't have that suffocation feeling. Mm. And you can zip off the uh, the cover of it at the t- head part and put up the bug net and then just use it like that. So oh, you get more great. more breathing. Really good at- but they're they're like a couple hundred bucks um, Canadian, about two hundred thirty bucks. I think I I've seen them for about one eighty US. They're not cheap. The yeah. other ones I've found that probably what I'm gonna get though is the is one made by a company called Alp Kit, and I think they're. Oh, yeah. I think they're British. It's a British company, yeah. Yeah, and um, and it's really got a good price. It's like under a hundred. It's about a hundred bucks, and they make yes. a, they make one that's um, it's the Alp Kit Hunka H U N K A, yeah. and um, they have the XL sized one, which is a bit bigger because I have an actual air mattress and not just a self inflating mat. And you can fit your air mattress in it, and if you get the Hunka, you can actually put your bag in the bottom or your bags if you're bike packing and stuff. So kind of gives you that option to, to secure your kit a little bit more. And it's like not much heavier. It's like 
500 grams or something. So heard very good things about Alpkit. I've, I've actually gone Alpkit bikepacking like rear saddlebag, and it's really good. Oh um, yeah, really. You like it? Yeah, yeah, it's really good, mate. Yeah, I don't know the exact type. It's like a waxy, canvasy material one, mm-hmm. um, which that. But it's um, yeah, really good company that they're based up in in England in the north of England. I think, or maybe they've got a few of the stores that I've seen around. But uh, yeah, so either of them would be really good. I've only ever used really heavy duty military ones, like you described, mm-hmm. which are great in the sense that they're free because I was in the army, and and they're really durable. Yeah, that's the good thing. And they are heavy, and civilian available ones are much cheaper and just as good. Yeah. But yeah, if you talk $100, $200, think about the price of a tent would be double that generally at least. Mm-hmm. So if you're just one person and you really wanted to get out and wanted to protect yourself from the elements, a bivy is a really good lightweight option of wild camping. And if you're if you're feeling a bit gnarly and you want to go lightweight, I think a bivy is the way to go. Yeah, and if you're if you're bikepacking, for instance, or fast touring, or like, you know, you're going lightweight, bivy's the way, like. Yeah, I think my I think so. my whole setup bivy bag. If I were to get, for example, the Alp Kit Hunka, as I mentioned, that bivy bag, air mattress, and sleeping bag. I'm looking at like yeah, it's one point three, one point four kilos, something like that. Pretty cool. Do you think there's anything else that we've uh, we've not covered? Man, I don't know. Um, we could talk forever on this topic. I think. Yeah, I think I think we kind of covered the basics. So we kind of covered um, where you can camp, different types of places like temples, and you definitely can't go wrong with temples and mosques when you're in Southeast Asia. Yeah, one, um, one good tip: really good hosted camping, as you'd say, hosted camping. It is a good tip. It is um, particularly in things like Southeast Asia, is sleeping in, uh, in in areas like Southeast Asia, is sleeping in police stations, and yeah. a lot of success asking to basically put my tent up and stuff in, in a police station and usually there'll be a toilet and it's kind of like hosted camping. Mm-hmm. Um, police stations, mosques, fire stations across the world, firemen are generally very bored, sat, that, sat around doing a lot, lot, not too much. But obviously when things kick off, they're really busy and you don't want to be in their way. That's but generally right. in, the, in the middle of a very rural area, the fire service will often be voluntary and it means you just ask them if you can sleep and they'll let you just generally stay and chill out with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, any religious buildings, um, churches, mosques, um, Buddhist temples, it's one of the things I enjoy about religion is it's a, it's a good way for people to get together and bring Connect. communities together. Yeah. Hey, you know, there's another thing we didn't talk about, and that's um, being aware of what's in your environment. So one instance is, when uh when I interviewed Jonas on his Cape to Cape and he said he was going through the nature reserve and he the rangers let him sleep inside their cabin and while that happened that night one of the dogs got eaten by a lion. You know, be aware of where you are. If there are wild elephants and tigers or lions, you, you need to be aware of that. And obviously there's not I've tigers, just, it'd be lions, but um Yeah, I've just been in the bush in Kenya this week and just been sleeping out basically in the middle of nowhere and we set up a tent and we have a load of like barbed wire basically a load of wire to go around the tent area mm-hmm. and you see giraffes and elephants and hyenas and you know that there's big cats out there as well so yeah that's a risk that you've got to be aware of for sure yeah. listen to the local 
And then in North America, the, the bears. The bears. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, and, and we talked about this before, and I think it's really important that you you don't eat where you sleep. You don't shit where you sleep. You do those things as far away as you can. And like, even you said, I think you would cook and then you would cycle for another few kilometers or whatever. Just get a really yeah. good distance oh, in. Always cook away from where you sleep. And, mm-hmm. and with your bags, it depends where you are in bear country, but try and hang your food or use a bear box. If you're really worried about the risk, make sure you use proper campsite campgrounds and they will nearly always have a bear box where you can put your food mm. in like in a publicly available kind of like a metal box. And yeah, that's that's something that I'd, I'd take it seriously and not not just ignore it. Yeah. Everybody wants to see a bear, but you don't want to see a bear when he's inside your tent getting your food. Oh, and... Was it one of your friends? What was that Italian? Or one of your guests? The Italian guy. The Italian guy. Ran into did he get? Did he get his kit all um, matched by a bear? Really? Yeah, I think not? a bear damaged it a bit and stuff. I actually knew a girl in the army. Uh, we were out on an exercise doing like a an overnight patrol or something, and we came back to the tents, and there was a bear in her in her lean to shit and stink and disgustingness all over because it just sat there and went through her entire rucksack and just ate all the food and snacks she brought (laughs) that's mental oh it's disgusting disgusting oh yeah that's not gonna smell good you don't want that to happen but yeah um be careful the animals but don't be too worried dogs are your biggest issue dogs start barking they'll just start barking all night yeah it was um, your episode 36 with David Trevelli was the... Um, 26, was the, not 36, I'm sure. 36. Is it? Uh, yeah, no, it says 36 here. Does it? That's got to be misspelled. No, it says 36. I don't have 36 episodes. <laughs> I think it's the um, Apple podcast automatic numbering. Oh, that's why. Maybe. Okay. Yeah, it does that sometimes. But um, yeah. I think um, I think we've covered pretty much everything. I think that's it. So I hope uh, I hope people gain some insight and some ideas on uh, how to to be more effective when um, when wild camping or what is wild camping and how to planning their nights, sleeping and stuff. Yeah, thanks for that your time there, mate. And uh, yeah, it's really good to be doing our second touring talk episode. Yeah, and we always have a, a theme, and then we just really talk around it. They're really I suppose we kept on theme quite well with that one, with a few good stories. Yeah. Um, I, like, I like a good story. I think um, I think it's also important to say that if, if people have suggestions on things they want to hear about, um, they can email me at info at Bike Tour Adventures. They can find me at Bike Tour Adventures on Instagram and Facebook and or go to the website and fill in a contact message. And they can also find you at, uh, what do you go by now? Yeah, add Adam Hugill on Instagram, Adam Hugill with an underscore at the end. Yeah. Um, or, or on YouTube as Adam Hugill. Get hold of us and let us know what you guys want to hear about. Yeah. I think this right now is a great time to be planning big bike tours for the future. I think for next year, hopefully when the world goes back to normal-ish, we can start planning. So start saving, start planning. Don't go buying any rubbish because you no longer leave your house. 
and just stay in and save that money for a big bike tour. Yeah, and use that time to like figure out what pieces of kit you want to buy if you need stuff, you know, do some research and or listen to this. Maybe we'll talk about some of the kit you might want to use. Yeah. Sweet, mate. You know what we're going to talk about next time? I haven't thought about it yet. Let's, uh, let's figure that out later. Cool. Sweet. All right. Bye, buddy. See you later. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated and keep on pedaling.